Whether you're a polyamateur or polyambitious, polyambiguous or polyam, I really hold your head high. Let your freaky flag fly, cause your polyamory should be uncensored. Hi there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode, and we try to answer the five points of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to our poly lives. Hi there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored. We are talking to Keely today, and this is episode 86 already. Stay tuned as we delve into the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths of our poly lives. All right, so Keely, who are you? All right. Well, that's a big question. But first of all, thank you so much for having me on here. I'm really excited to chat with you today. I am, well, let's run down some of the easy things to knock off the list. Demographic wise, I am 33. I live in Chicago. I am a polyamorous queer educator for boundaries and consent and a cuddle therapist. I am a geek. I am a kinkster. I, yeah. There's, there's lots of things about that make up me. And uh, when it comes to how you identify, what kind of polyamory do you identify with? Yeah, I try to, if everyone is familiar with it, if they're not, I can define it, but I live fairly close to kitchen table polyamory. That is where my comfort zone is. I do, uh, it's not a deal breaker if a partner is not as invested in kitchen table polyamory as I am. Um, We just have uh, conversations around what that looks like and accommodating for different people's needs. But yeah, and I think I am not relationship anarchist fully, but I do subscribe to non-hierarchical polyamorous models. Cool. So what does polyamory mean to you? Yeah, so... um, I've actually had a challenging but good and full history with polyamory in that uh, for a long time, it was really, really important. That label, specifically polyamory, was really important to me. And then I found ethical non-monogamy to be a bit more comfortable. And I'm actually in the process of re-adopting polyamory as more of the label that I go with. So it's an interesting journey. But what polyamory means to me is the ability and the choice, the, the specific choice, to engage in multiple authentic relationships, defining each by what actually is there and not by a societal standard. What initially drew you to polyamory? Mm, I had no idea what polyamory was. Um, I moved to Chicago after college. I grew up in Indiana, so I moved to Chicago after college and Um, I went on a date with someone who took a phone call very respectfully, but took a phone call during our date, uh, asked if I would, wouldn't mind. Um, and he took a phone call with his wife and I was like, what? And on the phone, I could hear him addressing his wife in a way that I clearly understood that it was his wife. And he was referencing the date that he was on with me. And like, is this an emergency? Cause I'm on a date right now, but I, you know, I know stuff, stuff going on, like in the background with just, I don't know, something with her that they, he needed to be present for. And she's like, Oh, no worries. No, this can wait till later. Finish your date. And I, I 
I was so confused. You didn't know he was married at all when going on the date? No. So this was a super casual, like we had met at a bar and he's like, hey, I'm coming back here tomorrow for the band that's going to be here. Are you going to be here too? Great. So like it wasn't, we hadn't had Uh, any full. It was like, hey, we're going to be at the same place. Do you want to like make it a date? Yeah, great. Like it, it was not the like, tinder vetting yeah, right, process right. that you have a lot so he now. wasn't like lying or anything you just was no. just super casual okay that's interesting yeah no it was super casual and then he looked at me and he saw my face and he's like hey yeah so that was my wife <laughs> obviously she knows like there's no secrecy here what questions do you have let me like normally i have a whole conversation but this just came up <laughs> and it was very very lovely and and um that from that moment that kind of silly uh kerfuffle of a moment um i started diving into it because it felt so just hearing how this person talked to their wife about this and how comfortable and confident and their communication was around it mm-hmm. it so like fell into place click like puzzle pieces just okay um Wow, that was very articulate of me. (laughs) But I I get it, though. No, I had a a similar thing where the first time I saw a really what I deemed successful poly relationship, I was like, oh, I didn't know that was an option. That's amazing. And it really did just feel like like a world opened up that I was like unaware of. Oh, wow. This is an option. This is a thing you could do. Yeah. And 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 then, of course, with ADHD, I just did a hyper focus on yes. everything I could possibly get my hands on about what polyamory was or what non-monogamy was uh, for like six months. Fair. <laughs> Joined yeah. every meetup group that existed. And in Chicago, there's a number of them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, here in Milwaukee, I had to make one. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I literally had to make a group because I guess the only thing that existed at that time was a yahoo group that met Mm. maybe once a quarter at like a chinese restaurant and had four or five members and so i was like well that's unacceptable like no (laughs) and here i'm looking at meetup on chicago and i'm like they have like 10 groups which granted that's not always great either like but chicago is a bigger bigger city so it does make sense um Mm -hmm. having more options is a good thing but yeah it was um I was like, no, I gotta, I gotta make something. And it was actually, so this is how long ago it was. Tristan Terramino was on tour for her book opening up. Oh, she okay. came and spoke at UWM. Um, yeah, and that place is it in a specific time. <laughs> exactly. Right. So I'm thinking probably 2006 or something and no, it had to be a little bit later, 2007 or eight. Uh, anyways, that time period and when she was speaking at UWM, there were tons of people there. I mean, all my age too, which was also cool because the Yahoo group, everyone was over 60. I was like, oh God, mm-hmm. I'm 19 or 20, you know, like really young. And every, there's so many people there. And granted, most of them probably didn't identify as poly. They were just there because there's this awesome sexual educator, Tristan Daramino. There's probably, you know, like a lot of people there who were just volunteers or people who were interested in the topic, but not actually identified. But either way, a whole like huge room uh, lecture hall was filled with people for her to talk about polyamory. And I was like, okay, at least mm-hmm. 10 to 20 people here are probably identifying as poly as well. And they would probably want to come to my group. So yeah, that's kind of was a catalyst for me to making a meeting because I was like, oh, they exist. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> yes. I love that you had the initiative, especially when discovering something new. I don't think I would have getting started in polyamory was so fraught and so 
uh, like this tightrope walk. I feel that that was my experience anyway, um, of, of so much learning and, and really more so unlearning Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. deconstruction of my, the existing ideals that I'd always grown up with. That was the harder part. It wasn't the creation. It was the, it was the destruction of all that. And I think that's why I wanted a community so much because I was so, I was struggling so much in the beginning. I was like, really, how does anyone do this? Uh, Why is it better (laughs) or not? You know, like whatever. Um, And yeah. I feel like such a mark of people who are successful in polyamory, like is, do you have community? Mm -hmm. I feel like it is like, if we had comprehensive data and statistics, I would be floored if it didn't show that people with community were successful, harmed less people, felt less harmed, like were, had more longevity or, you know, I I don't want to measure success of relationships and longevity, but like had more, what felt fulfilling and healthy to them Mm -hmm. relationships sooner. And, um, comprehensively than people who don't have community like across the board yeah and maybe like i think a measure of success also is how you break up <laughs> like yes. you know how you can de-escalate a relationship without it being you know your basic what society has told you is a, a breakup that like fighting horrible dramatic never see them again you know mm-hmm. throw burn all of their stuff in the driveway breakup and that's like mm-hmm. societally encouraged sometimes that's how you break up with someone and i'm like oh but what if (laughs) breakups were nice and healthy and mutual (laughs) i love that you mentioned that too because that was one of the small pieces of the hundreds of pieces that i was like oh this thing that i have always kind of done which was remain friends with exes which was like unheard of in most of my social circles. They're like, Oh, you still talk to them. Didn't you date for like two years? Like, yeah, they're an awesome human being. Mm -hmm. I think they're great. It just, our relationship didn't end up going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw that happening in polyamory and like these relationships could be defined and changed with their authentic progression, I was like, Oh yeah. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. (laughs) Yeah. I, I also kind of discovered the, you don't have to be in a capital R relationship with someone to be in a loving, committed relationship with, you know, like, and that was mind blowing to me. And that's like relatively recent within the last five or so years. I'm like, Oh, I could like be in a, you know, like I guess friends with benefits, but that always makes it seem so like (laughs) less committed, I guess. I don't know. You know, like, and obviously labels. There's such a connotation to that. Yeah, exactly. Um, But you could be in one of those type of like casual-esque, not super committed relationships and still be completely in love with the person, can still be completely Mm -hmm. like committed to them in this different way. And Mm -hmm. it has been so interesting, such an interesting journey. And I'm like, monogamous people, especially the people who don't know yet, like, right. If you're, if you know about polyamory and you're just like, that's not for me totally cool, legit, hundred percent. And so valid. Yeah. Yeah. So valid. Uh, and I, I agree sometimes I'm like, yeah, don't try it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you won't like it. <laughs> like, you agree. know, yourself, you, you know, know yourself. like in those situations, there's plenty of really dear, you know, monogamous friends that I, I do see that. I think what you're talking about, or at least the thing I hear in what you said is there is this slight impression or subset of the community that like polyamory is, um, somehow a little bit more evolved of a type of relationship, mm-hmm. right? Like you hear that rhetoric sometimes. Oh, yeah. And I, I completely balk against that. That's yeah. not, I don't think that's accurate because people know themselves and some mm-hmm. people have 
I just as I don't want anyone to deny me my truth of what actually feels authentic and good for me in terms of having non-monogamous relationships, I would never define that for someone else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I truly, when people are like, no, I'm consciously choosing ethical monogamy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Good for you. Good, good, good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I feel there's like part of me that feels sorry for people who don't truly understand the scope and spectrum of relationships that mm-hmm. one can have, even non-sexual, non-romantic, you know, I'm like, yes. there's so many choices. Oh my and, God. Platonic life partners are the best. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like, there was this uh, meme I saw recently that was like, Do, would you like to be my platonic queer life partner? Um, anchor and then they were saying all these things and the person was like i understood half of that uh, like but i was like no i understood everything and, and i actually really love the idea of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that sounds great get me one of those yeah <laughs> so what kind of things do you find difficult about polyamory yeah um schedules if every single person who comes on your show doesn't reference schedule i know right then i don't know what kind of poly they're practicing <laughs> Um, sorry, I, I also want to make a note that I'm trying to consciously say polyamory, polyam, or ethical monogamy, because I do want to honor that poly mm-hmm. is actually the short for Polynesian, right? And like that term existed way before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, that habit, I am consciously trying to rewrite just to name that out loud um, and hold myself accountable for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so <sighs> scheduling. Also, what I find really challenging that... Um, is very specific to how I like practice is managing my emotional energy and allotment for partners. Because while I do believe that love is infinite and it is not a scarce resource and it can be shared with as many people as you want, um, my energy is limited. My, my emotional energy and time and labor, um, the allocation of that is almost always challenging. I'm also in a caregiving profession. And so that's something that, yeah, it's something that I'm constantly um, trying to make sure I'm getting better at and being focused on. And that can be, yeah. 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 And I, I have found that just with, you know, I'm also a mother. So it's like, uh, sometimes I'm touched out, you know, I know. And I feel so, I, I sometimes feel guilty because there are so many people in the community and during the pandemic that were so touch starved. Right. Mm-hmm. And there was this huge recognition in the community. And I think just globally of people who need touch. Mm-hmm. And I have, there have been many days in which I'm like, I just don't want anyone to talk to me or touch me for at least 24 hours. <laughs> Yes. You know, where I'm just yeah. like overwhelmed with people and the energy of giving. Are you comfortable if I ask you a question about that? Oh, absolutely. So some of my clients who are mothers um, or primary caregivers will um, still come to me and they they have that same, or at least they're they're saying some of the same words that I hear you say, like I'm touched out and whatnot. And what I find is interesting is sometime in session, what they discover, what I've seen them discover is that they're within themselves. There are different kinds of touch, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And like their kids, it's a lot of gimme touch. It's a lot of service. It's a lot of um, like caregiving, understandably so and wonderfully so. But when they experience the kind of touch that is solely about receiving, it does get filed into a different bucket. They can experience it in a different way. And like that ends up being replenishing. Does that ever happen for you? Or is it just like too much? 
That makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't know. I feel like I, I do feel like it's the the expenditure of of touch in a in a service oriented kind of way that makes me exhausted. Right. For sure. Um, and then taking care of people and making sure I'm consciously aware of all of the things that everyone needs. That's exhausting. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever fully distinguished one touch from another and, yeah. or I've just avoided it to be like, just in case, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. so yeah. I don't know. And it's such, it is rare. Right. I think during the pandemic, it was really interesting. Like during lockdown specifically, I remember sure. everyone being like, Oh my God, I can't wait to go and like hang out with friends and be around people again. And I, I was locked inside with my young toddler and husband and I was like, I just want to be alone for a second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. constantly yeah. surrounded by these two people who I love dearly and would do anything for. But it was months, you know, 10 weeks of just two people and that's it. And they were always there, always. Because my kid wasn't going to school. She wasn't doing it. And she was so young. And I was just like, I just yeah, cabin go. fever is a thing. Yeah, it's a thing yeah. for a reason. <laughs> my like escape was going grocery shopping. Like I was like, I can at least, cause my husband can't go grocery shopping cause he's high risk. So he couldn't leave the house at all. And so I was like, I just want one hour to myself. I'm going to go grocery shopping and I might go off for a walk, <laughs> you know, like for a while there, even grocery shopping was like dangerous. And we were, mm-hmm. you know, getting shipments. And I was like, no, no grocery shopping is my escape. I need this. I need to go. I need to leave the house. Yeah. So I, I experienced the pandemic, at least the lockdown portion a little bit differently than I feel like a lot of my friends, you know, I had a, a solo poly friend who was like completely isolated for like 10 weeks mm. and I felt so guilty. I was like, I don't want, I like, like, I was like, can we please switch places for a second? Can you take care of my family and I'll go be alone with your cat? Like, <laughs> like I want this, but <laughs> I totally understand everyone had different, um, had different problems <laughs> during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. it was you know, the adjustment to just all the systems that we all set up in our life to make it function. Everyone is creating their own systems for functionality, functionality in their life. And all of them were disrupted. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And if so you, you have... got on the fly, come up with something completely new. And everyone had different, you know, factors. Like we had high risk household with a kid who couldn't be vaccinated and then pre-vaccines, like it was just so on lockdown, so tight. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. Everyone has different levels and it was, and then trying to interact with other people's levels and trying to be like, are you safe enough to be in our bubble? Like for a while we had no bubble. It was just the three of us, you know? So it was, yeah, it was rough. Oh God, quarantine pods. (laughs) Yes navigating i think i feel like that was one of these things where like polyamorous people were primed and ready to have these conversations and still they were playing on hard mode Mm -hmm. (laughs) like even even i i kept thinking about this with a lot of my friends of like man we are the type of people who are maybe the most skilled at these types of conversations and Mm -hmm. have the most practice and it's still exceedingly difficult how the hell are the normies doing it I know. Yeah. I was like, this is almost exactly the same kind of conversation I would have with someone about STIs. And yet it's so much worse. Cause I'm like, at least with like STI screening, you know, you have some kind of data. And I was just like, before testing was super, um, like you could just get a test. You couldn't get a test in the beginning anywhere basically, or you couldn't go buy one at Walgreens before you could just test yourself and when it was, everything was so unsure, I was just on like 
monogamy level lockdown. I was just like, no, I can't, nothing is worth it. Like, I just can't do this. So yeah, it was really, it was really difficult. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, don't know. I feel like there was an element in there, not to make this whole thing about quarantine, but <laughs> there was an element in there. Whereas with STI conversations, I think in a lot of, at least the, the circles that I run in who that are trying to destigmatize that are sex positive yeah. and also conscientious, right? Um, there is this uh, understood, th- there's not really a moral attachment to right. whether or not someone has STIs, but with this pandemic, whenever someone had a like personal protocols for their safety that mismatched, mm-hmm. it was almost a moral judgment of yeah. whether or not that person was um, taking the air quotes right precautions right. or if they were being air quotes safe enough and mm-hmm. conscientious of other people enough. So there is this piece of like morality judgment of other people when they didn't match your pod. That was that's different than STIs. Absolutely. We had people leave the community because they did not believe that poly people were being safe enough by having like outdoor walking dates. They were like, absolutely. You're not taking the pandemic seriously. I'm leaving the group. And I was like, I don't know how to deal with this because I I agree that people need to be safe. And I also agree that mental health is incredibly important, you know, and yeah. there's this yeah. weird disconnect of like, well, what's more important, you know, like, yeah, can you not, can you really truly be alone for 10 weeks and not feel anything about this? Or are yeah. you, are you able to be on your high horse because you have a nesting partner and you're never alone? Right. You know, like there was just right. this horrible moment in time where everyone felt like everyone else was on a different level and then that they could judge them about it. And I was really, especially as a community leader, I was really trying to tell the line of like, no, I don't really want you to promote the barbecue you're having (laughs) inside during the middle of a pandemic, but also don't Mm -hmm. get mad at other people because I just, you know, like people could do it, are going to do what they want to do. And yeah, it was really difficult. And especially because I was at that level of really strict, hardcore, not doing anything, seeing Mm -hmm. other people going out and having like Halloween parties on in 2020. I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm so jealous, obviously, or like jealous in that way of like, I would never do it. But also like, I am jealous that you're out out there doing shit and then everyone got COVID at that party and I'm like oh my god but this is why we don't do shit like what the fuck you guys in no way are you glad that anyone is sick but there's a little feeling of justification of like okay I made the right choice that FOMO is worth it absolutely yeah and that's happened on multiple occasions where I have been like no I'm sorry I can't make your event and then Mm -hmm. someone tested positive at that event and I'm like this is why we don't do this you know and so Mm -hmm. yeah it Mm -hmm. is but it's really rough because also that FOMO is real. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I really, it is, it's very difficult to say no in any capacity sometimes. And then it's also very, right. but yeah, it's a kind of a sigh of relief of like, oh, thank God I didn't. Uh, but also I'm missing out on so much stuff. And there are so many events where there are, there's no consequence where it's just happening and everyone is mm-hmm. doing great and they're mm-hmm. healthy. And especially now everyone, everyone in my community pretty much is vaccinated. So it's like, sure. A lot of people are doing stuff and I still feel a little uneasy, you know? Yeah. 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 That yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. I think that came off of the, what did we find difficult? <laughs> so, well, right now, things, yeah. the thing in the world that is yeah. most difficult. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm curious I, I, with that question beyond the jealousy conversation. Um, I'm one, I'm curious what other people say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I feel like actually scheduling and communication has been the top two things that people talk about when it comes to being difficult or um, dealing with society, right? Like dealing with other people's misconceptions about like what polyamory is and and how a lot of people just don't understand. And that's totally fair. (laughs) I get to bypass so much of that because for many, for like many different reasons, I don't have um, any kind of relationship with my extended family and my um, immediate family is like pretty chill um, because they've had to be, but like my polyamory feels personally very tied to my queerness Mm -hmm. one of the things i discovered and one of the things that felt the most affirming when i first became polyamorous is like whenever i would date anyone um there was a sense of loss that i would never be able to find connection in any other sexes Mm -hmm. um anyone else with any other gender expression that might feel that might have such a different experience to um, my relationship with them, um, there, there was this huge sense of like, oh, if I have to choose monogamy and I have to pick one person for the rest of my life, it means that either I fully commit to like never entertaining any of my attraction to any other gender, right? Besides right. the person that I'm with. Mm-hmm. And there's such a bag that comes with that, right? Like if I were to choose a cisgender man, then all my life, I feel like my queerness would be completely invalidated. Right. Right. And then if I chose a cisgendered woman, then there's this label of lesbian that I would be the box that I'd be put in when that doesn't, that's not accurate. It's mm-hmm. part of this large whole, but it doesn't feel like an accurate thing. And then that also precludes, like if I am in a, a relationship with someone who's non-binary or whatnot, it's like- right the queerness in so many instances is the only thing that people will identify me and not necessarily see the whole of me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which isn't, isn't negative. I, you know, but there is just so much that never felt like it was right or affirming to all of me until mm-hmm. I was like, Oh wait, I can celebrate all these different kinds of things and, and honor the different kinds of love that I feel um, with polyamory. It was, it was really, it was a really important part of my, my queerness. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I agree. And I feel like that's so many folks' journey when they open up their relationships. It's because there's so much left to explore. And I, I don't know how often I hear it in my poly community um, is like my, you know, their primary or nesting partner or anchor or whatever is someone they met in high school. It was their high school sweetheart, oh, wow. the only person they have ever been with. And then now in their late 30s or whatever, they're exploring what they would have maybe done in high school or college and, but they never got the chance because they were in a quote unquote monogamous relationship um, for, you know, sometimes 10, 20 years. And then now they're like, but I'm, you know, either I'm bi and I've never gotten to explore that part of my life or, but I've never been with anyone else. And, you know, there are a lot of dicks in the sea or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that's There's a, a lot of fun to be story. had out there. Yeah. And that's not to say that, um, I think there's also this concept that comes up of kind of like Frankensteining your needs as mm. opposed to working on creating depth and, um, healthy conflict resolution within a relationship, right? Like, oh, well, this person and I don't quite get along here because we haven't really had a conversation or talked about that. So let me just find that somewhere else. And then totally. Frankensteining what mm-hmm. you, what would be your ideal partner, mm-hmm. um, because you're not having these conversations. And I want to 
like that trope is it can be really toxic when someone actually practices it and that's that's yeah different than what i mean totally yeah i actually think that it was so interesting because i want to say it was like hedwig and the angry inch there's this Mm -hmm. part of the uh of the play in the musical where they're talking about plato's symposium of like a person and it's really it's animated beautifully in the movie a person or a soul has been ripped in two and then you have to find your soulmate and that's how you can be a complete person and i remember Mm. seeing that in like college and being like okay but what if your soul was breaked into three or four or five (laughs) and you need to find your people your multiple people to feel whole and I remember thinking at the time, you know, again, being like baby, baby Lindsay, 1920, that that was Aww. like my, that was the, my interpretation of it. And then later in life, I was like, wait a minute, what if I think about myself as already being whole and everyone else is extra, <laughs> you know, everyone else is icing on the cake, but I am a whole person, you know, mm-hmm. and I had to really, really rethink the adding people to your life to feel better about yourself but what if you are just working on yourself first and foremost? And that took a long time. It took a long time to really like um, come to that realization that you shouldn't necessarily add people into your life or your relationships because you're trying to fill a void, you know, that took a while. And I I still, I sometimes wonder if I've got my head on straight about it. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's one of the, I love how you put that. And one of the biggest benefits to me deconstructing toxic monogamy and just default monogamy, not even just toxic monogamy, but um, was so many of those tropes of like soulmate, finding your other half, being this other half for another person, um, sacrificing to make a relationship work. um, Because, you know, if if you're really meant to be, then you can make it work. Like all, all of those what for me is kind of this fundamental running theme around a lot of those concepts is this lack of wholeness in yourself and exactly what you were talking about and the ability to see yourself as whole and autonomous and wanting that in every other relationship that you have, like actually no, what I would like is for you to be a full and complete person. And then I love that full and complete person and add to it in whatever way I can. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's I have what definitely I want to, to be that. for another person. I don't want to be someone's other half. I don't, right. I don't, I don't want that responsibility. I don't. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to fill someone's hole. Not that way. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's, I find that the fullness of my connections actually are so much exponentially deeper when we're all coming from a place of wholeness. Yeah. Um, I'm and trying not obligation. to get, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when, when you are coming to something as with the thought that you are not complete there, you're coming to it from a place of depletion. You're coming mm-hmm. to it from a place of scarcity, right? Like I need you in order to be whole. Yeah. Like, that is scarcity. A hundred percent. And where, whereas if I am also whole and everything is wonderfully like icing, as you said it, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then the, de- the, like the, the, it's infinite how great it can be. Absolutely. Yeah. As opposed to this benchmark of just, can I be whole? 
That's it's such so a limiting thing that society will tell you it's the exact opposite that you, if right. you need someone, that's a good relationship that like they need you and you need them. And this codependency is like something that you should strive for in a relationship that like, I need you. I love you so much. I need you in my life. And I, I think I truly did find like relationship happiness when I was like, actually, if this relationship ended, we can still be on good terms and it would be okay. We would work it out. I would still love you and, and that would be okay. It would just be a tr- another transition. And I think yeah. some people, especially maybe people in like that monogamous mindset would be like, well, that means you don't love them or that mm-hmm. means it's not in you know a, a committed relationship or something. And I was like, no, I think I'm just like, are you really a super happy person? And I could be happy with five people or alone. And I would still be happy because I love my life, <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. it's just, and it's just a really interesting mindset that, that some people, well, a lot of people, especially in America, it's really the world, whatever, aren't happy and aren't happy with themselves right. and aren't, yeah. you know, like confident in their abilities or their goals or where they are in their life. That's just so common that, mm-hmm. you know, there's just so much left to work on and you you look in any way, shape or form and places to feel good. And sometimes that's drugs, alcohol, whatever. Sometimes it's people. A lot of times it's people. And I actually think Uh, that growing up, that's what my mom was, is that she was like, we have addiction in our family left and right. And her addiction was people. And she just uh, needed people. And I saw that growing up and I was like, I never, ever want to be that, you know? And I think that it took a while for me to understand why, she was doing that and mm-hmm. to try to be proactive about not doing that in my own life. But yeah, it's, it's, I would not call it easy to like, to, to no. because again, society just enforces it so much in everything. Yeah. Oh I, yeah. That also resonates so much with a lot of what happens in my work with like this idea that um, communicating around consent then ruins it or yeah. um, like, there's this um oh adhd is stealing my thoughts like if you're not a mind reader then you're not you're not in a good relationship you don't know your partner enough if you can't read their mind like that's yes thank you it's like that wholeness if they're the other half of you then there's all this like assumption and like shouldn't you know what i need Mm -hmm. as opposed to like being explicit about well actually the only way we're going to find this really amazing, abundant way to connect in terms of physical touch is if we both verbalize it yeah. and, and own what it is we actually want and not just like that sacrificial, you, I need you, you complete me, I, I will do whatever you want. Like that, well, what do you want? You know, that putting off of the, like, it's kind of like desire, um, badminton yeah <laughs> what do you want what do you want what do you want yeah. i'll just do what you want you just tell me what to do it's fine i don't care yeah yeah and i think yeah. god how and i don't know if this is maybe i would assume but I, obviously things are changing every day but like i would assume it's a little bit more societally enforced for people raised women right that you should do what your partner wants uh and i think that was so societally enforced even in even in movies that were like feminist-ish in nature or whatever, romantic romantic comedies, romance novels, whatever, all these things that I grew up with, they were like kind of really encouraging of do what your partner wants, be their fantasy, be what they want, you know, do mm-hmm. be a good person for them, not for yourself, for the person who you love. And that's yeah. just, mm, I, the, there, and again, we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but like unlearning, 
so much of what society has told you has been an ongoing process. And I, I, I still see, I'll think of something and be like, oh, wow, that was a really fucked up thought. And it's like every day, a little bit, I have to unlearn a little bit, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there is commonly women, people who are socialized as women, um, there is this measure of how much can you endure? Yeah. How much can you endure for the sake of other people's comfort, pleasure? Mm-hmm. And, and it's not even as, it's not even always as insidious as endure to the point of pain and mm-hmm. um, uh, collapse, but it's certainly not for your pleasure. Yeah. No, it's certainly not. Yeah. It is certainly not for the purpose of you. It is how much can you endure with a smile on your face and pleasantly so that the other people around you are happy, content, uh, served, pleased. Yeah. There's so much of that. Yeah. A quick shout out to Emily Nagoski and her sister. Can't remember her name, but um, I actually have it written down right here. Uh, Their book burnout Mm. formative in fucking self like work and happiness. Oh my God. So such a good book. Um, Emily and Amelia Nagoski. Burnout. Burnout. Yeah. If you're feeling these feelings hardcore with us talking about it right now, go read burnout. I, I was so like excited by how, what everything they said in that book. And a lot of the stuff that we're talking about right now is, is in that book mm-hmm. that as soon as I, cause it was, I was listening to the audiobook. Uh, as soon as I stopped, as soon as it was done, I started it over from the beginning and listened to it again because I was like, Oh, that's awesome. It's in my head and I need it to be really like stuck there because it's so yeah. fucking good. So if you guys are feeling feels about this, go read burnout. It's about, essentially how the patriarchy is fucking all of us over and all of us socialize as women, especially, but honestly, it could be anyone. Can it's, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, it's everyone. Yeah. It's um, everyone. And the patriarchy fucks everyone. So, you know, <laughs> if we're sharing resources, I, I would love to be able to share two that have helped me um, specifically in this. Well, one Absolutely. is my next uh, thing, the book untamed. Untamed. If you're familiar. Mm-hmm. Untamed. Yeah. <sighs> Um, I have only read small excerpts. It's my next on my audiobook list. Okay. Uh, it's what I will be doing when I'm on a road trip here in two weeks. Uh, but all of the bits that I've gotten from it are, are exactly a t- like addressing a lot of these things. It's called Untamed. Um, and then the other person, I am really need a lot of in-person hands-on like I don't I can read things and the concepts are great and lush and rich but to integrate it into my behavior and into my life um, experiential workshops or experiential things are the the key and so there is an incredible educator named Marsha Paczynski who has uh, a workshop a, a like training and not training that's not the right word but um, it's called the good girl recovery program. Mm-hmm. Love that. It is so good. It's the good girl recovery program. And it is about how we're taught to be a good girl, right? If yeah. people who are socialized as women have that, that burden, Just of you're told yeah. that expectation from the world, right? How do you stop and embrace and find the value in not being a good girl? Mm-hmm. So it's like this. And also Marsha just has this brand new book out called, um, uh, oh, it's her consent book, consent culture, uh, creating consent culture is the name of it. And it's phenomenal for pre-sale. No, it's, it's for pre-sale. Right oh, it's now. Per se- okay. Okay. I read, uh, Kitty Stryker did a book, uh, called yes, Ooh. or something like that. 
nice. creating consent culture or something. Yes. Very similar title, but yes, yeah. um, that one was also really good. And it was a, it was a compilation of essays from a bunch of different pe- folks on different like aspects of consent. Mm-hmm. I will also try to find that Kitty Stryker consent book. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm writing all these down so that I can put them in the notes. Okay. Oh gosh. Where are we? <laughs> We're, we're plugging all our friends and all of these awesome people that we like. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is important. Everyone needs friends to plug them. Whoa. Hey. Hey, hey. I like where this conversation is going. All right. So when did you feel different from other people, if ever? Uh, when do you start to speak? Yeah. Like one, two. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like um, the trope of being an outsider has always been a huge factor in my experience of my life from my neurodivergency, from um, how like hypersensitive, how hypersensitive I was as a little kid, which was tied to my neurodivergence and uh, my queerness, uh, realizing and embracing and understanding what my queerness was in, you know, an oppressive culture in Indiana. Mm, um, oh God. Yeah. I, being other I also uh, was a really big kid. I grew up really fat and that was my experience. And I was awesome. I was an awesome kid. I was super mm-hmm. like athletic. Um, and that was just part of my experience, but it was another experience of being othered. Um, yeah, that was just a hallmark. So very early on it made, I will say this. I think that it made the decision to adopt polyamory much easier than it is for, I think, sometimes for people who are more um, able to exist in mainstream and um, because it's not as much of a departure. Like, I, right. I don't know how many times my parents were like, oh, Keely's on something new or Keely's <laughs> right. doing a new thing, right? Like, this was just the new phase, right? Mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. as it sometimes feels invalidating to hear, but, but it was just like the new phase. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was so funny. I've, I've, we've talked about, you know, coming out on the show before and there are people who are like, well, after I had already come out as trans, non-binary and queer, like Polly didn't even seem like that big of a deal. <laughs> like my parents have, they've gone through it enough. It doesn't matter. You know, that kind of thing. It's, yeah. it's really interesting. Whereas, you know, if you're like married for 20 years in a monogamous, yeah. that could be very in your, you know, cishet, whatever, that could be quite the the wrench. But uh, yeah, for some Especially people, if you're like, a parent, oh. I feel like mm, people are too. so harsh on parents and like, how is this going to affect the kids? And like, oh, man, that that navigating that is not something that I envy. Oh. Right. Right. Yeah. Added layers. So when did you know you were poly? I guess when you moved to Chicago, you said I, I knew that word. Right. I, oh, okay. I discovered the word and I discovered that that really was an option um, when I moved to Chicago. So about 10 years ago, I've been polyamorous for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I will say that my first inkling of that, that something I didn't have name for or words for, but the impulse that I now understand to be polyamory was high school. Mm -hmm. I, there were several instances with relationships and, like friendships that blended lines that it's like when I found the word, I was like, Oh, I've, I've been trying to figure this thing out on my own and just stabbing in the dark for a long time um, of this thing. And you're telling me that there are other people who can like kind of help me figure it the fuck out. Right. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Or at least support me in figuring it out. Right. (laughs) 
So where would you say you are in your polyamorous journey? Really comfortable. Uh, like, where am I? Um, I feel pretty solid in my understanding and experience of what it means to me. I feel pretty stable with a lot of my relationships. And when I say stable, I don't mean I know for certain they're going to last forever. I just mean that I feel so comfortable with how I navigate the relationships that I'm in, that regardless of how they change, it will be done with care, compassion, and kindness from everyone um, and lots of love. Mm -hmm. So that to me is a huge hallmark of... um, of the experience and uh, the like 10 of 10 years that I've been doing this. Yeah. Um, And where do you hope to go or do you have any goals? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I joke, and this is actually uh, very much a joke, but I joke that, yeah, I need a partner in like all the different regions Mm -hmm. of the world. Mm -hmm. Cause like I have a partner in San Francisco. I have one in New York. I'm, you know, based out of Chicago. And so I just need a few more partners (laughs) in Colorado, just a few more really key locations so I can travel all the time and always be with a partner. But that is mostly joking. Um, But it would be convenient. I mean, it it would be lovely (laughs) if that happens to happen, then cool. Um, No, for me, what it looks like is, I feel like I should have an answer for this, but <laughs> where do I want it to grow? I, li- I like it how it is. <laughs> That's totally valid. <laughs> I'm really happy with where my relationships are right now. And um, so I guess my hope is that I can grow in um, just deepening all the connection and being um, even better for my partners. Cause I feel really fulfilled in the relationships. And so I hope I can always be a place where they can ask for um, any kind of growth and development that might feel comfortable for them. And um, one of, I don't know, sometimes the hardest question, why do you think you are polyamorous? For me, that question, the easy answer for that is because I am, because mm-hmm. I feel it. Right. <laughs> And I also think that something that can be really relevant to bring up when people are kind of asked that question is what I hear in it is this, is it a choice? Is it inherent to who you are, your identity? There's like that kind of debate. Yeah. And for me, I I kind of similarly, this has been something that I have been really coming to around queerness as well. For me, the decision of whether or not, or the, the conclusion of whether or not it is a choice or whether it is inherent to someone's identity, like queerness, it's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I think it's irrelevant whether or not it's a choice or whether it's biological, Mm -hmm. because every human being deserves the autonomy, respect, and dignity to live a life that is fulfilling to them, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously within the bounds of not harming other people. So like, yeah, yeah, that's that, I guess. And I've, I've heard from, you know, absolutely both, sides and i to the point where i don't even consider it a debate anymore i'm just like no both are valid if you're choosing it and you've chosen monogamy and you're choosing polyamory now and you may choose monogamy again one day 100% valid and i support you yeah. and if it is a fundamental core part of your being and you will always be polyamorous even if you're single mm-hmm. absolutely valid and i support you you know like so mm-hmm. but i've heard mm-hmm. so much along those lines that i'm like no no both both and yes yeah. and <laughs> both things Correct. And I want to, I do want to clarify because I'm, I'm kind of criticizing how I've said that in just that 
if it is important to that individual that it is one or the oh, other, sure. mm-hmm. that's fully valid. I'm not trying to say it's irrelevant to you. Like if that is no, part yeah. of your validity and your experience of saying one or the other, cool. Mm-hmm. What I more mean is it's irrelevant from an outside perspective on like how we're defining it culturally, how right. we're addressing it culturally. It's irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. One is not less valid. It definitely. Right. Yeah. And I, and I have felt that, especially when at the beginning of that kind of debate where people were like, no, uh, it is absolutely a core part of my being and there's no choice in this factor at all. Mm-hmm. And I, it did feel somewhat invalidating. And I felt that I felt that is my identity. Right. But it, I'm sure it has come across as invalidating people are, who are like, no, this is my choice because mm-hmm. either way. It, yeah. Again, it is re- irrelevant. If it's your choice, you get that choice. That's a hundred percent your choice to make. And that's great. Good. Mm-hmm. And if it's your identity, and you're still obviously because obviously I think if it's my identity, I still can choose to be monogamous. I are not like in action, right? I can uh-huh. still choose to only date one person. I could choose to be celibate. So uh-huh. even if it's my identity, I can still choose a different route, uh-huh. and that's valid, right? As unhappy yeah. as it might make me, you know. Yeah. yeah. One of the underlying things that I hear when I hear that debate. Or, um, and I'm really relating this also to queerness for me. Mm, Yeah. yeah. So like whether or not being gay is a choice or you're just born that way. Right. I think one of the big reasons for the push to define it as you're born that way is because that somehow is more valid. And like, if you're just born because it's not a choice, you have to do this thing, then we should honor it that because of that, we should honor the dignity of this person, honor the, the light, you know, how they express it, et cetera. And for me, the important part, the important piece around that is make the choices that we make are just as important as our identity and and are just as valid and deserve just as much dignity and autonomy um, as if something is core to our being. Right. It shouldn't be respected only because it's like genetic or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's like, and then you kind of get into a little bit of like um, the essentialism, which I'm, uh-huh. we're not going to touch. Yeah. We're not going to yeah. touch that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And go, that can go down quite a rabbit hole of mm-hmm. yucky topics. <laughs> and yeah, then like yeah. eugenics, like, what do you, <laughs> Ugh, yeah, no, 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 thank you. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. And then the last question that we like to ask to wrap things up is why did you agree to be interviewed today? Oh, um, yeah, I love attention. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I say that I say that um, for a couple of reasons. And I also want to qualify that um, part of my life and my work is doing a lot of education around these kinds of concepts and around um, the validity of different lifestyle choices. Um, and, and I also think that this kind of lifestyle really breeds, um, not always, but it lends itself to fostering more communication, more consent conversations, more boundaries, conversations, um, sort of by necessity, of course, not everyone does that. There is still toxic polyamory out there. Um, but it, in order for this to function, it's way more essential to at least start those conversations. Whereas monogamy has a blueprint and people can really avoid it and, and feel as though they don't have to. Um, I hope that is coming across well, but one of the reasons why I say, because I love attention um, is my own personal little feministy activisty way of embracing that. Like, I think oftentimes people who are socialized as women and I, I use they, them pronouns and she, her pronouns. And so trying to validate my, um, my experience of gender queerness when I am so femme presenting is a challenge at times. Um, 
but the the enjoyment of receiving attention is often so shamed, especially in femme presenting people. Yep. And um, just like choosing to love and experience relationships with multiple people, just like um, any other uh, people's experiences of kink, um, embracing and acknowledging someone's desire for attention, as long as you're doing it ethically Mm -hmm. and not harming other people in the pursuit of it, it is just as valid. So Mm -hmm. that's my little soapbox. Thanks for Mm -hmm. listening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I totally get that. Yeah. And I know, especially, I mean, toxic growing up in the nineties and early two thousands, just a full course of, of toxicity in our media and uh, like, you know, those teen movies, all of that represented this like, oh, and there's this thing that's like, pick me girl, you know, like yeah. oh, she just yep. wants, she just wants all the boys. So therefore she's going to act like not the other girls and she's different. Mm. And, and there's all these, these tropes that I don't know. I was taught to be like, oh, well, don't be that. And don't be this yep. and don't be that. And, you know, yep. it's just like all these things. Don't be yourself. Ugh, gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, like, that's the unlearn. thing, right? When you're, when you're, when you acknowledge what's true and this, we can carry over to polyamorous as well. But when you acknowledge what's true about you, as opposed to trying to shun or shame or suppress or hide that part, then you can make decisions that are more ethical and informed because that need that you have, that desire that you have is going to try to get met. Whether you want it to or not, it's going to try to get met. And oftentimes when we're shaming it or suppressing it or whatnot, it tries to get met in unethical ways because Mm -hmm. it's still trying to creep to the surface, no matter how good we think we are at suppressing parts of who we are. They are parts of who we are. You can't Mm -hmm. remove that from who you are. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. um, why come out one way or another? Yeah. Yeah. They, they choose to, yeah, they come out. Mm-hmm, <laughs> they'll, mm-hmm. they'll just, um, desires, desires will come out. And if you can be honest about it, recognize it, be introspective about it, then you can act on it ethically, just like in relationships. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. interested in more polyamory uncensored content you're in luck we just started a blog polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com we're going to be showcasing stuff like episode breakdowns polyamory and ethical non-monogamy related book reviews and guest posts from authors like you if you'd like to be a guest author contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com and you might be able to see your work up on our website Again, that's polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com, and we're going to have some fun, new, poly-related content for you. Thanks. See you there. All right, and we are back. Uh, We're talking to Keely today about how being involved in cuddle therapy can actually make you better at relationships, specifically polyamorous relationships. Um, so to give the listeners a bit of information, like what is cuddle therapy? What is being a cuddleist? Yeah, I thank you for asking. It, it's sort of, it's a newer modality. I'll say that it has come to prominence lately. Uh, it's been around. I, people have been practicing this forever, but um, by that name, by uh, professional cuddling or cuddle therapy, it's been around for about five, ten years. Um, and how I practice 
is giving people access to platonic touch that's really healthy, produces oxytocin, reduces heart rate, uh, lowers blood pressure, boosts immune system, I keep going, but giving people access to healthy platonic touch, which produces oxytocin through boundaries and consent education. And that whole package can look really different person to person, but the elements of access to touch and I, I do want to clarify, I specifically say access to it because there's plenty of sessions or plenty of uh, clients who are working through um, complicated feelings around uh, touch or traumas that we don't, we don't engage that. And it's still a valid cuddle therapy session, even if you aren't touching. So the access is what's important um, to this platonic touch. So my job is specifically in a platonic realm. Um, and so the health benefits of it being in a platonic realm actually are more geared towards oxytocin than uh, people who engage in like sex work or whatnot. That's more towards serotonin and dopamine. So kind of mm. the, the behind the scenes of why it would be relevant even to compartmentalize that in circles that are you know, really progressive. Like, well, why is that important? Well, there, there are some um, positives to compartmentalizing those things. And then through the boundaries and consent communication education can't have one without the other. It literally is impossible to have safe access to touch without boundaries and consent communication. Thanks for listening to that long explanation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and that's interesting that you differentiate between like the chemicals released because I've never thought about that. And I I guess from a purely like uh, layman knowledge, oxytocin would be more the like satisfied feeling and then is like dopamine the more high feeling or I, how do you differentiate the two? Yeah, I, I uh, want, yeah, how I would describe it and mileage may vary, right? Mm-hmm, People's mm-hmm. Per- personal experience of these things will change from person to person, but that satisfied, I call it like a blissed out sort of like euphoric, but really relaxed in your body feeling that's very oxytocin. It's that, so oxy, a big burst of oxytocin is released once someone orgasms. Mm-hmm. The post orgasm feel is that, that like deep, like yeah, satisfied, but like relaxation, feeling of connection, that deep feeling of connection. And that just like kind of blissed out fuzzy mental space. It is different than say like subspace, right? I want to sure. clarify, even though what I'm describing can kind of sound similar mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, yeah, in sex work, there is much more dopamine and serotonin, which is excitement, uh, arousal, happy, uppy. I, so the quality I would give it is more of a buzzy energy Yeah. Mm-hmm. In ter- as opposed to more of a, like a gentle weighted chill energy. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. And actually the, the, the reason why I it kind of pinged something in me is that I will often talk about NRE as giving like serotonin feeling of like that. Like I say, it's like a cocaine laced cupcake. It's like such good, mm. fun, high energy. You're just like buzzing with, with energy. And then, um, I don't, there's a new term. It's not old relationship energy. It's like established relationship energy or something where, cause old makes it sound bad. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like these relationships that you're in can give you oxytocin, um, which is more satisfied, relaxed, chill vibes, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're different, but they're both very good. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not an exact science, right? There's yeah. lots of, I am not a neuroscientist. I just geek out about shit. Yeah. So I just do deep dives and, and, and read a lot of crap online. <laughs> Although 
little tangent that I feel is very fun and relevant. I was on during the the pandemic, I was on a podcast in the UK and it was run by a university there. And so they had me, they had um, a tenured Oxford professor who was a specialist in um, neuroscience around oxytocin and touch. And they had um, the, one of the leading experts running conventions on AI for human interpersonal relations and like simulating touch. Oh, wow. With, with AI. Yeah. Uh, and then me. And it was very, very cool to be able, there were two times it happened, but I would like describe why cuddle therapy and how it's medically affecting people and how like the oxytocin affects and the, like this age, uh, mature, I'm trying not to say old, but he was a more mature gentleman. Yeah. Um, who's like this Oxford professor is like, well, yeah, exactly what she said. <laughs> and then you on to like some other thing. And like my inner I, I don't know if I've ever felt more validated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially yeah, because totally the, that. Yeah, the, the British accent helps. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're like, you're so smart. And yet you might still have stuff to learn. Yeah, that's well, awesome. Of course, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I hope I'm, that's not coming off as like very inflated. It was just a, in, in a world where I am trying to master my imposter syndrome. Absolutely. Right? A mm-hmm. very lovely moment. But yeah, so the, the neuroscience really make, is fun. They don't really make like degrees in this kind of work. Like when I come on to other people's podcasts and stuff as like the poly correspondent or whatever. So I definitely feel that imposter syndrome. And I was like, I have been doing this for like 15 years. And if you considered this school of life, that's fucking impressive, right? (laughs) Right? Like, you know, that's a lot of information to have downloaded. (laughs) Yeah, I, it's so interesting, because I am a part of organizations and part owner of company that does training for cuddle therapy, and is trying to train other people to do this work. And it's so interesting what makes the curriculum, what doesn't, what is, uh, you know, um, what we would call intensives. And it's so interesting because I would put so much in there. I would just pack it, but then it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be as accessible to everyone because it would be just so rich, uh, like just too much, right? It would be overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and it, it also would get cost ineffective and et cetera. But there is creating your own curriculum is fascinating because you have to just broadly net whatever you can to learn about it. And then you find out which things were relevant. Right. Right. So what are cuddle parties? Cuddle parties are group workshops. So it is run by a nonprofit organization called cuddle party who trains and certifies facilitators. The events are about four hours long. The first hour of which is a workshop experiential workshop where people are practicing. How do you ask for what you want? How do you say no? How do you hear no? Uh, Reframing rejection. Um, How do you identify when you have a boundary? Even that is challenging for people because they're not necessarily connected to their body. They're not necessarily uh, given permission in their life to honor what their boundaries are. So the whole first hour is teaching people these fundamental skills. And then for the last part of it, the participants, which the cuddle parties I run are about 20 to 30 people, they're utilizing these skills that they've just learned to engage in whatever feels most comfortable for and mutually beneficial for them. I'm there as the facilitator to help um, support, organize, orchestrate as much as needed and also be hands-off to as much as their skill level allows. 
Um, but they are really awesome and very profound. And it's pretty different because it is a group exercise. It's pretty different than individual cuddle therapy. One-on-one cuddle therapy is much more catered to a person's like goal and what they're trying to get out of it, which can be so varied. These are very um, structured. And so how does cuddle therapy as, and I'm sure you could speak on both sides of this as a, like a, a practitioner and a client. I don't know if that's what the word you, you guys mm-hmm. use. Okay, yeah. cool. Great. Um, but how does it make you um, better at polyamory or relationships? And how do you think people can benefit from it? Yeah. The, oh, there's so many ways I can answer this and it, they're all really fun. So I'm going to try to <laughs> condense it. One way is similarly to how we have to deconstruct our existing uh, default monogamy and toxic monogamy settings. What cuddle therapy can do is help you deconstruct the societal expectations around touch, around what it means, what it means about you, what it means about connections. It can help deconstruct that to form actually authentic ways of engaging that are actually fulfilling as opposed to what you're supposed to enjoy. Um, One concrete example that I can give, if someone uh, really doesn't like hugs, they never have to hug and they, we can find alternatives that actually feel really good. Or maybe the face-to-face hug is super uncomfortable. So what they would prefer is to have someone hug them from behind, like wrap my, wrap your arms around me. I love that feeling. I hate the face-to-face thing. Like we get to dissect what touch is, what touch can be on a smaller level without expectations so that we can find what truly is satisfying. Um, So that's one way it it parallels. And then you can take those skills into partnerships and relationships and utilize this richness of touch. And you're getting more oxytocin. You're getting more um, connection out of that. Another concept that really comes out of this is the ability to separate or practice the skill of compartmentalizing and identifying what does platonic intimacy feel like to me? How is it different, if it is, than sexual intimacy? And how is that different than romantic intimacy? And there's more, more nuance and buckets that we can add, but primarily those three are, are distinct in many people's experience. Romantic versus platonic versus sexual have a distinct flavor or feel for them. And what so many adults experience is past adolescence you don't get the opportunity to cuddle someone without it being a precursor to sex. And rewriting those neural pathways, rewriting that somatic memory and that body habitual memory of cuddling doesn't have, it's not a train. This is Mm -hmm. not a train with no stations uh, until you get to sex. There is a ton of stations along the way that are awesome, Mm -hmm. that are accessible, but practicing parsing those things out can help benefit relationships because, hey, maybe what I want right now is connection in this type of way. And how do you ask for that from a partner? And how is that different in your different relationships? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that can be really, really rewarding when you can, when you, I, and you get more, um, as I ra- rattle on here, but you get more agency in choosing what happens as opposed to sort of being at the mercy of what your body might just be used to or, or impulsing to, uh, impulsively doing, um, which may not be appropriate for every partner in every situation, right? Yeah. That's another way. 
I can keep going. There's more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we had talked about a little bit before about um, communication and how mm-hmm. important that is in your work, but then also obviously in relationships. But uh, has that made you a better communicator in your relationships? Yes. It makes me a more comprehensive communicator and it, and it gives me so many opportunities to talk about things I never would have necessarily thought to talk about. Like what type of touch do you like and what type of touch would you like in this moment? Mm-hmm. Two very different questions. And, and what do you mean types of touches? Well, is it tickling touch? Is it scratch? Is it massage? Is it compression? Is it percussive touch? Like uh, tapping fingers on the back or something. Parsing things down and learning how to communicate around that is so important. But beyond the touch aspect, the biggest hidden element, I would say, to cuddle therapy from either side is in order for it to work and be healthy and happy, we have, and and, um, fulfilling, we have to be able to be really honest and present in our bodies about what we're feeling and what we want in in real time. And that can be really challenging in relationships. Like knowing what you want as the feelings and thoughts come up. A lot of people need tons of processing time. I know I've been in situations where like three days later, I'm like, oh crap, what I really needed in that moment was this. Right. And I, I had no idea that I was letting such and such and such and such happen I, I didn't even know that this had blown way past my boundary because I, I haven't had the practice of identifying when boundaries come up, what that feels like in my body and how to, how to react to them quickly. That's not a skill mm-hmm. I practice, right? Um, I, that certainly was true for me when I came across this work and started learning about it. And so what we break down in session is like, okay, from a very protective container and, and uh, structured environment, identify when that comes up. What does this look like? What does that feel like? What are, what is a boundary? Okay. We're going to go with permission and with a lot of um, communication, like we'll go close to it. What do you notice in your body? What's happening? Okay. When I back off from that boundary, what, what's happening in your body? How do you notice the difference? Where does that, where do you feel that? Um, and giving that kind of real experiential embodied practice makes it so much easier when you're in a heightened scenario to like, okay, I've practiced this before. Now I can start to identify it in heightened scenarios. Yeah. I think that, and I think we've touched on it a little bit before about like practicing saying no, right. That, that that's, that, that's a component mm-hmm. to like the cuddle uh, party workshops and stuff. Um, yes. And, and that is such an ongoing battle. I think for almost everyone I know, right. It's just like, it's a thing that, especially folks socialized as women have been taught to never do, um, you know, just do what people want, make people happy, sacrifice your own boundaries and and feelings or whatever the case may be. And, and in practice, and I remember, I think it was 2019 or something. It was, I, one year, my resolution was to say no more often, <laughs> like my new year's yes. resolution, say no. I love it. Yeah. And I, and I, I really kept coming back to that. Like, Oh man, am I, am I being, true to the things that I want when it comes to saying yes to this. And some of them were just like, you know, teaching a, another class at the tool shed. Do I have time to do this? Do I, is it something I want to dedicate my time to, or am I overwhelmed right now? Should I say no? 
mm-hmm. even if it's something I love doing. I love teaching. I love doing classes. But is it something that right now at this moment I should say no to? And setting up boundaries like, OK, I can do a, I can teach two classes this semester, but I can't do three because that would be too much. Or or like back when we had burlesque shows, I did burlesque and I'm like, OK, I can do this in this month, but I can't do every month because that's too much, you know, and actually mm-hmm. instead of pushing myself to do more and more and more, which I think I have done all of my 20s, I did. I am now coming at 34 to realize that, like, I can say no to things and practicing that has been so hard but so rewarding. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, and I think that it's, it is, it's just like a, it's a practice that people have to continue at and setting boundaries. That's like the, what you said really brought up a lot of like, Oh, wow. Yeah. I, there have been so many times where the next day after a date or a, whatever, a, 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 an encounter, I thought all these things that I should have done and said and didn't because at the time I didn't even know how I was feeling like, mm-hmm. So it's such a weird feeling to be like, oh yeah, there's like now 24 hours, 36 hours a week later, I am understanding actually what I was feeling. And yeah, it's, and then maybe that next time that, that kind of situation that you're in happens, you'll have a better knowledge. You'll have more, you'll have already thought through what you would do, but like, you kind of have to live through all these things and that's really hard too. (laughs) But I'm, I'm glad that like, you can practice those in cuddle therapy because I would never think to just go through practice. Mm-hmm. I was I feel like, well, life is practice, right? But that sucks. That's a bad way to do it sometimes. Well, and it's just playing on hard mode. Yes. Like yeah. what, what do, do some tutorial levels and then you can play the game on, on, on medium mode and then go to hard mode. Right. Yeah. Would you be interested in doing like a two minute exercise with me that oh, anyone can do? That'd be so that? fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Okay. This is the yes, no game. And this is a very abridged version. I'm going to go really quick. So I am going to ask you for, I'm going to set a timer for like 30 seconds. And I'm just going to ask you a bunch of series of requests and questions. And you have to say no to all of them. Okay. Okay? I'm going to set, I'm going to get my timer out. Not 30 minutes, 30 seconds. (laughs) She's a Okay. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Okay. May I kiss you? No, thank you. I'm good right now. All right. May I hug you? Um, I... Oh God. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm touched out for the moment, but maybe later. Excellent. May I go take your trash out? Uh, no, I don't think that that's needed right now. I'm good. Can I give you a million dollars? No, I don't. I don't need that, but please do something nice with it. <laughs> so two things. First of all, what did you notice in your body? Oh, it Tell was me really... two things you noticed. Yeah. So I, especially um, the, the hug question, for some reason I got really uncomfortable because I was like, oh, I, but um, I should always <laughs> say yes. Cause that's nice. Right. And cause giving hugs gives people oxytocin. And I'm like, oh, but that's something that's so nice to do for somebody, even if I don't want to. Right. And I, I did, I, I immediately felt like, oh, but I should say yes. <laughs> uh, so that's really interesting. Cause I, it did make me feel a little uncomfortable to say no. It's such a good thing to notice, yeah, right? Like yeah. that's what that feeling feels like in your body. Mm-hmm. Anything else that you noticed as you were saying no to the different things? Um, acts of service is my love language. So mm-hmm. someone asking to take out my garbage. Oh, that's nice. That's a nice thing. Right. And uh, being saying no to someone doing an act of service for me is like so counterintuitive to uh, w- what I would ever do. Right. So that, mm-hmm. that felt very strange where I was like, 
Although, although I have definitely had people say like, Hey, can I, you know, to help you out, especially when I was like, just had a baby, can I do your dishes? And I was like, Oh no, 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 you can't do that. That's, um, you know, and so there, there are definitely parts of me that would be like made uncomfortable with people doing stuff for me because I felt like I should do everything and be in control, even when I was literally laid up with a baby, you know, (laughs) so yeah, I don't know. There were, there were definitely layers to that as well. So of the kind of juxtaposition of you seem to say no pretty readily when I said, may I kiss you? There was like a solidity in your body. Mm-hmm. Did, I, I, that was just what I observed. Does that seem like it's right? Well, I, I would say I am more of a like demisexual person. So I often reserve kissing to people I know well. And though I do know you, I do think that I can often say, no, I'm not ready right now to kissing or, or having sex or something because I do feel like I need to have like an established connection with somebody. So that might've been a little bit easier because I have been able to say no to folks in the past and be like, okay, no, I, I need a little bit more or, you know, whatever, like established connection to be able to make that happen. So if you take yourself back to when you said no at that moment and remember, and as much as you can remember what that felt like and compare and contrast it to when you said no to the taking your trash out. Mm Mm-hmm. What changed in your body? What, what physically, where, where did it feel different? In my stomach. Your stomach. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Great like, notice. Yeah. It's uh, the uncomfortable feeling was like a little bit of a twist in my stomach. Yeah. 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 So we, we do that kind of practice to identify like, where, where, where am I feeling these things? Mm-hmm. And, and the, the excellent notices you had about like, oh, I just discovered that I have an internal story of obligation with hugs, Mm -hmm. right? That's interesting. I wonder where that came from. Oh, it was from my parents were Mm. like needing me to hug every family member at every event. Yeah. And forcing really. I mean, I've definitely understood that when having a child and being like, oh, would you like to hug your grandparents? Because I never got that choice. And I, Mm -hmm. I totally recognize that when having a kid myself that like, wow, you should really establish consent younger because there were so many of us growing up that never got a a say in the matter. Mm -hmm. One thing I do want to point out as well is no is a complete sentence. Right. I did explain too much. I did not have to do that. And I, and I realized it when I was doing it, I was like, why is this awkward? Why do I feel the need to explain? (laughs) Why do I need this to feel, to um, add on to no? But yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can I, I'm going to, suggest uh doing this again i'm just gonna ask you three rapid fire and you just say no um without explanation do you want to try it yes okay may i redecorate your home no may i uh uh, tickle your back no may i give you a high five no okay (laughs) do you feel yeah tell me what you noticed oh it feels weird it does feel weird because it's like well but why why are you saying no you should, you should give someone an, uh, you should give someone an explanation as to why. That's one thing that we really work on a lot, especially in cuddle therapy. Um, and, and specifically there's a line in the, in the workshop of cuddle parties that no is a complete sentence. You never have to justify it for any reason to anyone ever mm-hmm. in that space. Now I do understand that there are some interpersonal, some interpersonal circumstances and contexts where it is a really great idea to explain a little bit, but, but I know, I know that the vast majority of people 
feel the obligation to explain well more often than is necessary. Mm-hmm. Right? Or even just saying no, thank you. And maybe that's like Midwestern niceness, mm-hmm. you know, pushed into me, but like saying thank you for offering, but no, uh, mm-hmm. that is my go-to for sure. And I, and it definitely is probably put in my brain as that's the most respectful way to say no, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily wrong either, but it's also like, it's an added I guess, unnecessary thing that like, you don't even have to be nice (laughs) if you don't want to. (laughs) It's kind to just be honest. It's okay if it's necessary for you. Yeah. For me, what I try to uh, like give people the option of experiencing is like, is that, does that feel like a compulsion? Does that feel like something that you have to do? Or does that feel uh, affirming and a necessary thing for you because you want to do that? Mm-hmm. giving that option, right? It, I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that if, if someone wants to say no, thank you to everything, right. and that's their preferred way that they shouldn't do that because that's bad and too much information. In no <laughs> way am I saying that, right? Right. It's the, I am obligated to explain because I, the world has taught me that I can't set a boundary, that my boundaries aren't to be respected without a full explanation because other people's comfort is more important and more of a priority than my, than my boundaries. Yeah, that's the, that's the message that it's received a lot. And I have found, gosh, and I feel, and it's so weird because I'm like, I've been doing this for so long. I should be better at it. But I have found even as recent as this week being asked out on a date, setting a boundary that no, I am polysaturated at the moment. I'm not really dating being asked (laughs) out again within the same conversation and having to be like, well, I guess I could, you know, like, and, and, and explaining to myself and this person that like, well, I guess I could, you know, like, um, uh, make something work. And, and I have not fully said yes to this person yet. And I'm like, oh my God, I really need to just like fucking mm-hmm. speak my truth and uh, not uh, push my own boundaries because I'm trying to appease another person. That's, And yeah, it is such an ongoing learning process that again, I've been doing this, I've been dating for years, decades almost, and still trying to work through this shit. Yeah. Yeah. There's not, there's not places for us to practice, right? This is the, well, there are, but they're not talked about. They're not readily available. They're, they're harder to find for, because they're not in the mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the reasons why for me, cuddle therapy was so so revolutionary in my experience of it, uh, just receiving it. Right. And then, mm-hmm. and then doing it. And I also want to offer that, you know, in circumstances like that, like the, you brought up, I, I tend to also reflect back, just kind of do a little bit of reflection to the person of I've said no once mm-hmm. and you've asked again, and that gives me pause. Right. So what, what does it, how does it feel okay for you to ignore my first no? Tell me, tell me what happened in your brain where it was okay for you to ignore my first no. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and I know I've been in, in situations where like later I'd have to explain that, but at the moment I didn't have the words, you know, Mm -hmm. where I I know this, I had this sexual experience where someone asked if they could not use a condom and I wasn't even like, oh my gosh, like this was such a, uh, it was a first experience for me because I date so many people who are so like risk aware and are so like headstrong about using protection and double protection. Like, are you on any kind of birth control? Cause then I will also be on, you know, also using condoms. And so for someone to ask to not use a condom was like 
blew me away to the point where I don't even think I had to think about my answer of just like, oh, absolutely not. What the fuck? You know, and Mm -hmm. then they asked again and then they asked again and I had to say no each time. Well, I did say no each time, right? Like I didn't have to. I did because that is my boundary. And I remember being so increasingly uncomfortable with that person just because they asked the question and because they asked it multiple times. Asking it once is one thing, I guess, if you're like, if you don't like uh, condoms, that's totally valid, I guess, you know, but to ask it like three times is like, oh, it made me so uncomfortable. And I had to later say, because at the time I just, you know, I don't think I had the words to formulate what I was feeling. I was just like, no, what the fuck? No, like, no, absolutely not. And later I had to be like, so that made me so fucking uncomfortable. And I will never, ever have sex with you again. In fact, if I never see you again, that'd be cool too. And he was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's so hard to like, especially with something that's a new experience, it's hard to even as- practice it because you don't know what you don't know, or you don't know what's going to happen. But yeah. I mean, having these tools should help with any situation that might arise, um, mm-hmm. even if you don't expect it. Because I definitely didn't expect that. I date, I only date people who are so incredibly risk aware conscious that like mm-hmm. having this like random one-off date that ended up sexual and then ended up being like a really weird occurrence of me having to actually state my boundaries out loud. I mean, in a way it was a really good experience because I learned something, but in the other way, I was like, wow, this is so uncomfortable. I shouldn't have to say these things to you. And yet I really had to, you know? Mm-hmm. One of the cool things that I love about those moments, cause they're hard. They're not, they're, they're challenging. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I do love about them is that those are the moments where we actually build trust in ourselves. We talk a lot about trust in other people. We talk yeah. a lot about how do you form trust? How do you build trust in relationships? How do you, how do you find trust to navigate jealousy? We talk so much about interpersonal relationship trust, and we do not spend a lot of time talking about how do you trust yourself? How do you mm. build that skill? What does that even look like building trust in myself? I've never even heard of that, right? Like how we do that is by proving to ourselves that we can hold our boundaries, that we can identify them, that we're practicing those things and taking care of ourselves in the way that's going to feel the best. Yeah. And, and um, that, is, that is one of the biggest takeaways that I think I had from this work and from polyamory just in general is how do I get so solid in myself? We, talk, we started off this conversation talking about that wholeness, right? Yeah. And how do I get so solid in knowing that I can take care of me? Yeah. Um, to build that trust. That's, that's a huge endeavor. Yeah. It, it would be interesting to like go into, you know, scenarios thinking like what would make future Lindsay proud <laughs> that I stood up for this boundary, you know, like keeping that at the front of my mind, because that that's very true that like, there are things that I will do and later be like, Oh, I wish I had stood up for myself. Like, Oh, that makes me feel so shitty about myself, even though obviously it was like another person doing it. But, and then there are things that like, like, establishing my boundary of always being always wearing condoms and being like, no, very steadfast in this, you know, boundary and sticking up for myself. And that did make me feel really proud that like, oh yeah, I absolutely can stick up for myself when it comes to things that are are really important to me and fundamental to my boundaries. You hella did. You built a lot of that trust. It was awesome. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That is a good way to look at it for sure. (laughs) And one thing that you uh, mentioned a little bit back that 
um, I thought was really good and gave me, and I wanted to come back to it. The asking once, I, I am a huge proponent of you can ask anything. Mm-hmm. You can, if it's the first time, if it's genuinely an a ask and genuine asks, you can hear no just as much as you can hear yes. Mm-hmm. Genuine asks are not, are not obligatory or, um, or pursuant, right? It's a genuine ask. You can ask anything yeah. as long as you can hear my answer and I will not be offended. I think in, there's, there's a, a concept called guest culture versus a, a, a ask culture versus guest culture. Totally. Yeah. And it, in guest culture, asking things that you don't, that you're not certain you're going to get a yes to, or certain aren't imposing, um, just asking is considered rude or, or um, imp- imposing. And I, I personally don't subscribe to that. So yeah, I live by the, you can ask anything once. It's the, you have to be able to hear my answer honestly and respect it. Mm-hmm fully respect it without coercion, without, and we teach, I teach um, in these workshops uh, in cuddle parties and in cuddle therapy that when someone says no, you say, thank you. Mm -hmm. When someone tells you, no, you say, thank you for taking care of yourself. Thank you for being honest with me. I'm really grateful that you told me what was really, I'm really grateful that you answered honestly. Yeah. Like reframing that as it's not rejection. That person is bidding for connection. Every no that you hear, the other person who's told you no is actually bidding for connection because they trust you enough with their honest answer. They trust you enough to be a safe place for them to do something challenging for many people, which is to say no. They've given you the gift of honesty. They've given you the gift of authenticity. Like They've given you the information that you need to successfully navigate your world. Because if I want to hug someone, like we'll just make this really, um, really basic. If I want to hug someone and I ask them, would you like a hug? And they tell me yes, but, it, but it's an internal no. Yeah. I don't want that hug. Mm-hmm. I, don't want, I don't want an obligatory hug. I want one that's going to feel fulfilling and good to both of us. I didn't ask you to, I don't want to unknowingly violate your boundary. I do not want to do that. Totally. So it gives me the information that I need to successfully navigate. Like, okay, you don't want hugs. Cool. I, I still want one. So I'm going to go find it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings us back to polyamory, right? It's like the, I want to have an authentic connection with this person who doesn't feel like they have to be my whole world and fulfill every possible need so that they can say no to the things that aren't fulfilling, aren't comfortable, aren't what they want. And I can go and still find the fulfillment somewhere so that my needs are met and I am responsible for meeting my needs. Right. Yeah, right. Right. Whereas society would tell us that your partner is responsible to meet all of your needs and mm-hmm. even your mental and emotional ones that oftentimes you only can really. Meet. I'm the only one who knows who they are. Yeah. Knows the ins and outs of them. Right. And that's why the, also the whole being a mind reader in relationships is just like, uh, nope, never. You should have known. Uh, did you talk? Did you tell me? Did you explicitly <laughs> say the words? I, I'm never going to engage in mind reading ever. <laughs> I fail. I fail every time. Why would I choose to play a game that I cannot win? Something that we had mentioned a little bit before, actually, before we started recording is like the misunderstanding of cuddleists that kind of like a lot of people assume that it's some kind of sex work or a lot of people assume that there's more of a sexual component than there is. And I think that there's kind of a like a correlation there i guess with polyamory in that it's all about the sex or it's all about you know it's more like swinging or something like that you know and i don't know 
how, how does that worked with you with like the misunderstandings of like what society deems cuddle therapy? Yeah. Um, I, that I run across quite often. Um, it's a great question. And so, <laughs> Okay. It depends on how progressive I want to answer this. Right. <laughs> so, um, I, as a human being, not with my professional cuddler hat on, but as a human being am pro and supportive of sex work being is real work and yeah. want it decriminalized, want people to, I consider it a form like a broad definition form of healthcare. Um, sex Absolutely. work is a health form yeah. of healthcare that people should have uh, access to. Um, cause it is a uh, sexual health is a need. It is a fundamental need in human beings. Um, anyway, so that those are all like my politics around it. Right. And it's also really important to acknowledge that so many other people have different broader definitions of what sex feels like to them. Um, and, uh, you know, we see this a lot in like toxic monogamy of this idea of ownership, ownership over a partner. And so when people who would consider cuddling as an extension of sex, because they've never separated that out, right? We talked about how after adolescence, most people's experience is cuddling as a precursor to sex only. Mm -hmm. If they have that solidified association in their mind and in their brain, and you couple that with this belief in ownership over a partner, yeah, that makes sense why they would think that cuddle therapy is an extension of sex work and uh, an extension of cheating. Cheating, yeah, for sure. But in that same broad definition, the reason why one of the tenets of polyamory is so healthy is that you don't have ownership over another person. They are a full autonomous being who can experience the fullness of life and, and just communicate it to you and your guys are navigating that honestly and mm -hmm. in consent, Right. So yeah, so I consider cuddle therapy an extension of, uh, of healthcare. I do want to be really clear in that um, I am not a licensed clinician, right. right? I am not a psychotherapist or a marriage and family counselor. This is a different, it's like you wouldn't also say a massage therapist was a licensed clinician, right? Mm -hmm. Or an occupational therapist, right? There's different kinds of therapeutic modalities. Um, but I do consider it under the broader umbrella of healthcare. Right. But I also consider sex, sex work under the broader. So is it akin? Is it neighbors? Yeah. Mm -hmm, Just like mm -hmm. cardiology is neighbors with like oncology, depending on where that happens. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. They're neighbors. They, they inform each other, even if they're different specialties. Yeah, absolutely. And you're still certified, right? Like you had training. Yeah, you've mentioned, um, uh, and I appreciate it because I love it, but uh, Cuddleist. So Cuddleist is one company that certifies people. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought that was like a regular broad term. Totally. It's like, it's kind of doing a little bit of a Kleenex effect. Sure. Okay. Effect, oh, I see. Right? I see. Yes. It's, okay. it's, it's doing that a little bit, which is fine. Um, but also to, to the point, if someone has been certified with some of the other incredible institutions, they might not call themselves a Cuddleist, right? Mm, so one, okay. another great institution is... Um, Cuddle Sanctuary out of Los Angeles run by the amazing Jean Franswell, like awesome, awesome stuff. Um, there's certified cuddlers out of Portland, Oregon run by Samantha Hess, who's amazing. Um, there's uh, Cuddle Professionals International out of run out of the UK. So there's, there's, I, I, I have every certification that's offered. Oh, okay. <laughs> I also get training in, um, in, on course to hopefully be certified by um, probably 2022, 2023 for IFS, which is internal family systems therapy, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a therapeutic modality that like it's, you know, there's CBT and DBT and uh, uh, um, wow. I'm EMDR. 
which all these things are not cock and ball torture or, you know, they're, they're <laughs> forms know. of therapy. And that's, yes. those are the things I'm like. So IFS is kind of um, another modality that you can get certified in, even if you're not a licensed clinician. So I do try to round out my practice. Um, I also uh, have some education in somatic experiencing. That's a modality that mm-hmm. really involves a lot of embodiment and sensory or sensate focus. So yeah, again, trying to create your own curriculum with this kind of work is interesting and cool. And I love it. And there's so many directions that you can go. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I wanted to bring up that you had mentioned before is like unwriting uh, touch and relationship expectations. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, what, what do you mean by like touch expectations? Yeah. Um, a couple things go into this. One, there is a difference in what kind of touch, what do you like? What are you into versus what do I want right now? And I think some people, especially in relationships like, oh, I know my partner likes X, Y, Z. I know, say, you know, in in the, we'll just say it's head scratches, whatever it is, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. But we often find these patterns and these um, rhythms with partners and then make sort of generalized assumptions that don't acknowledge the, in the moment, they don't acknowledge the, human beings aren't static creatures, right? We're always changing. We're all like, what, what I want in this moment may be something that I normally don't like, or um, I just may be definitely a no to something that I traditionally love. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what, what we try to do a lot of the time is be a bit more present and, and parse out what is this identity that you've kind of created about your partner and what we're responding to. What is the present desire? What is the present communication that can happen around touch? So that's part of it. There's also like sort of this expectation of reciprocity always. Mm -hmm. And that's societal. That's more of a societal pressure. When I actually find, and what we work on a lot is, yes, reciprocity is great. But when you can set specific containers for just one person to be receiving and then switch it, you often find a lot more deep fulfillment and a lot more longevity and a lot more equity in relationships when you can just settle into the giving and receiving roles for, and I, like I said, a container, like a designated number, a time, a time frame, or a day or something. I often recommend an exercise called like bossy massage or the three minute game. And these exercises focus on what does it feel like to just receive? This is not at all about your partner. This is mm-hmm. not about their pleasure at all. And we're going to set a timer for five minutes. And you're just going to experience what that's like. Mm-hmm. And what does it feel like for the other person to just be giving? Not thinking about their own pleasure in that moment, thinking about their boundaries and what they're comfortable with. Sure. Yes, always. But it's not a bit, who's it for? And when we can actually get more clarity on who something is for, then we can start being like, hey, we did this for you. I'm really happy and I am excited that we did that. Let's also do something for me for about the same amount of time or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? Then you can get that deepness. What I find so often is if you're always trying to be in this reciprocity, no one's actually getting exactly what they want. You're kind of in this middle zone of compromise always, mm-hmm. and no one's getting fully satisfied, <laughs> Right. right. Um, that is a that is a trope that we find a lot because we're not designating who is this for and why. Is it really matching a desire you have, or is it matching this idea of your partner that's a generalization? It's funny. It brought up that question you had asked me 
much earlier on the podcast about like when I was super overwhelmed with touch during the pandemic or not really touch, but like interacting with just my husband and toddler, what did it feel like to have only like someone uh, in service to me? And I was like thinking about it basically a little bit the whole time where I was like, what does that even mean? You know, like when has that happened? And then the thing that just kind of came up in this conversation was like, oh, well, what if I like had a massage or, you know, something totally non-sexual, got my nails did or got a facial, those kind of things are absolutely relaxing and are wonderful because yeah, I'm, I'm paying someone to do a service that is again, not sexual, but is touch related and is a hundred percent attention on me. And I don't have to give anything back. And that, and it's so rare. And of course, of course, during the pandemic, we didn't get to do any of those things. So it was like an impossibility. But those things are like my treat to myself where I'm like, this is something so wonderful and lovely that someone can do to me for me. And I don't have to do anything. And that that is, I, I didn't even really think about that, but like that is something that's such a lovely treat that I love to do. What if I told you that didn't have to be a sometimes treat? <laughs> well, again, during the pandemic, sometimes that was a very difficult thing to to manage. But mm-hmm. yes, that mm-hmm. is an interesting concept to be like, yeah, I could just have, I could do that kind of stuff <laughs> whenever well, I want. And, and one of the things I hear there is that the container, or again, I keep talking about this concept of a container, but the container with those services is that money. Money makes yeah. it really clear. I actually yeah. think it's great um, having that exchange of service because it's like, no, I know that your need, you know, person is completely taken care of because you've set a price and I've paid it. And I know you are like, that's all you need. Yeah. We've communicated this so clearly. We can do this in interpersonal relationships with our partners. We just use other tools that aren't money. Right. Like, yeah, like what if in that moment where it was just your kid and your husband, if you're like, honey, when the kid goes to sleep, Uh, we're going to set a timer for 10 minutes and you are just going to scratch my scalp while my head is on your lap while I, or like whatever it is for you, right? The thing that it would feel amazing. And it's going to be a hundred percent about me. And we're just going to stop after that. And we're not going to do anything else. Mm -hmm. And like, what if you could have those things that were a hundred percent about you in little increments all the time. And then you can also do the reciprocity thing, but it's also, yeah. yeah. That is an awesome idea. That'll be something I bring up in uh, <laughs> our weekly check-in. And the that. time container is super helpful. The, um, yeah, man, it's just, uh, there's other things that you can, um, like setting physical limits. Like maybe you want someone to explore um, on your, a part of your body, but you have to set the limits or what oh, kind sure. of touch they can do, mm-hmm. right? So setting those, that clear container boundary of like, here's where we're exploring and here's who it's for is really important. This is all the work, uh, by the way, <laughs> all of this is the work of Betty Martin, who is a Betty genius. Oh, Betty no. Martin is uh, brilliant and amazing and phenomenal and teaches incredible workshops. BettyMartin.org. Okay. Betty with a Y or an IE? It's B-E-T-T-Y. Okay. B-E-T-T-Y-M-A-R-T-I-N. I spell Betty, Betty Page so often that I'm like, I should ask. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a really awesome. I don't I I don't know if I'd call it a revelation, but something to think on for sure. And I'm I'm sure other people have had the same thoughts. Cause and I think I talked about this to my partner once and and he was also kind of like, Why can't you just have that at any point where I was like, you know, it's so nice to have and I was thinking I was talking about getting my nails done, something I have not done in 
literally over two years now because I don't I didn't get it done regularly before the pandemic. So it's probably been three years where it's just like constant attention on me. And I don't I mean, you know, sometimes people are chatty and that's nice, but I don't even have to talk. I just mm-hmm. get sensation and it's wonderful. And having a manicure is like so nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's something I I was like, and it's something I'm lacking, something I want. And I just don't know how to get that fulfilled. And my husband was so confused. Like, well, do you just want a hand massage? I was like, it's different. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to tell you. But yeah, it's something that we uh, have, have discussed about like, I just want a hundred percent of someone's attention some way, shape or form. Let's figure this out. Yeah. I love it. I love, mm-hmm. And maybe it's just the needing, needing that other piece of like a timer or something to mm-hmm. just like solidify it that you can, you have permission, right? You have permission to not be caretaking for someone, but you got to embody that. You have yeah. to find a way that you can. I know for me as a caregiver, sometimes I got to find a way to gain my brain yeah. of like, turn this off. <laughs> Yeah. Just receive. It's about you right now and not anyone else. And that can be hard to switch out of that mode if it's a default, especially for parents. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You are always in caregiving mode pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so I think to to finish off this this conversation a bit and, and conclude, um, how do folks find a cuddle therapist? And is it totally legal everywhere? Because I think in yeah. Wisconsin, I don't know. I don't know what the awesome legalities question. are. It is legal everywhere. Okay. Uh, cuddle therapy is legal everywhere. Um, there are websites that I highly recommend. Cuddlist being one of them. C U D D L I S T. A lot of people will put an E in there, like cuddliest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's cuddlist, like a violinist or a pianist, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, the one of the reasons why I recommend that site is because everyone on that site has been through a training program. Yeah. So at the very least, they have bare minimum. Uh, Cuddle Sanctuary is another site that requires people to be have some sort of training and uh, certified cuddlers out of Portland, Oregon. I will say Cuddle Sanctuary is mostly based in California and uh, certified cuddlers is Portland, Oregon. And Cuddlist has a bit more um, national reach, but marginally. There's also a cuddle um, association that is training people called Cuddle Sage. They don't, I don't believe they list um people, but it's cuddle and then S-A-G-E, cuddle sage. Um, they're phenomenal as a training program. So I would say those places are your most reputable. And unfortunately, they're not across all states. Sure. There is still some limit. So there, there are some other places, there are some other websites that will kind of list anyone. Because I do want to be really clear, it's an unregulated industry. Yeah, I absolutely. actually think there's a very rich discussion to be had on the pros and cons of that, because there's both. Yeah. Uh, non-regulation means that there isn't... Um, disproportionately uh, decreased access for marginalized folk. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. But you know, it's, it's a, it's a whole mixed bag. So any, any website that someone looks at that doesn't require training, you just as a consumer have to be way more discerning. Yes. Yeah. And, and ask and vet your professional heartily mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on other sites. Um, they can find me in particular at Chicago Cuddle Therapy, either chicagocuddletherapy.com or on all social medias, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, uh, Facebook as Chicago Cuddle Therapy. And I travel a lot. So I'll be, in, I'll be in Los Angeles for January through March. I'll be traveling to the Bay Area in February. I go to, the, I, I travel a lot. So there's places that I'll be in people's towns. But I, yeah, I highly recommend it. That's really cool. 
I was just, gonna, I, I was like going to ask this question and then I'm like, wait, this is like counterintuitive to w- what cuddle therapy is, but like, can you do a virtual session with someone? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah Cause I was like, totally again. but what about touch? <laughs> but some of this yeah. is just learning. So some of it is just learning. And we also, interestingly enough, we have ways of gaming your brain. So we'll yeah. do something called a mirror touch and just a quick rundown of what that kind of looks like. Cause it's the easiest thing to explain. Like I'll say, okay, put your fingertips on your forehead. I'll put, and it's over zoom, right? Yeah. So I'll have my fingertips on my forehead and the client will as well. And together I'll be like, all right, now from your fingertips and your forehead stroke down the side of your face and stop and cup your cheeks. Like really gently. I, this is simply this may not be the type of touch that they want, but just as to give you the visual of like, they're seeing the action happen. They're feeling it. They're doing it themselves, but they're feeling it. But our brains will put the two things together and you will be able to produce oxytocin. I will admit that if it's, you've never done this before, the first minimum 30 seconds are awkward. Yes. Yeah, After sure. that, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to get over the awkward hump of trying a new new exercise and a new medium that is completely foreign to your body. And then your body adjusts real quick. So there are ways of producing oxytocin as well as getting all the other benefits. That's really cool. Yeah. I imagine again, through the pandemic, so many people being touch starved, like even a a virtual um, like therapy session probably was very beneficial or hopefully would be. Oh yeah. And I've got clients on, on so many different walks of life. Some people who are working through, um, like doing the exercises that we've done here today, or some people who are just mostly looking for honesty, authentic companionship, and and someone to be a non-judgmental space. And that I'm happy to do. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. What a good service. <laughs> uh, thank so you. Awesome. I appreciate yeah. that you get it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to promote? I've got One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine things I'm going to link (laughs) in the show notes right now. So, um, but is there anything else you'd like to promote or yeah, anything else you want to leave us with? I feel complete. Okay. Is there any advice you'd like to leave our listeners with? Any advice? Yeah. The advice that I would want to leave people with is it's actually a really good idea to be super selfish with your needs. I think that selfishness gets a bad rap because when it's gone too far or when it violates consent or someone's boundaries, then it is categorically bad. But being selfish about our needs means that we are fully resourced for other people. And if that's your touch needs being met, if that's your mental health needs being met, if that is your social um, or sexual needs being met, they're a priority. You are a priority and it's okay to prioritize yourself over everyone else. Mm, I love that. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for being on. I felt like this was a, I mean, in some ways it felt like a cuddle therapy session for myself. And I love that (laughs) in a selfish way it was. And I love that. (laughs) I am so grateful that you had me on and uh, I get to talk about the thing that I love the most. Awesome. All right. Well, if you ever want to be back to talk about literally anything else, please let me know. Cause this was, this was great. Thank you so much. You too. Bye. And that is it from us at Polyamory Uncensored. We have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank podcast husband Rob for being our sound engineer. And thank you, Lindsay, for editing this podcast so that we sound smart. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Polyamory Uncensored. Contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a comment. 
And if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time contribution, we've set up a PayPal link to make it super easy. Thank you for your support in any amount at paypal.me slash polyamoryuncensored. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember, we love you. Bye.